You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. So uh, Ephesians, or uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 is where we're going to be. And so uh, last week, I started by uh, just acknowledging that we had our, fi- our five-year anniversary. Uh, our church family turned five years old uh, last Sunday. And it has just been the story of God's miraculous grace showing up over and over and over again to our church family. It's just been a remarkable ride. And I mentioned last week that um, turning five also made me think about a church in the Bible, the church in Ephesus. It's the only church that we get to see its birth, its life, and its death all kind of within the Bible. And so in Acts chapter 19, the church in Ephesus is born. Paul shows up in the city and God just unleashes incredible power and grace and mercy all over the place in the city. So people are repenting of sin and they're turning to Jesus. They're meeting Jesus in the city. They're maturing in Jesus in the city. They are um, growing in obedience as they're uh, you know, turning from their sin and walking humbly with God. So, so God is just blowing this place up. It is an incredible movement of God that started the church in Ephesus. And then in books like Ephesians, um, books like First and Second Timothy, that's Paul writing to Timothy, an elder at the church in Ephesus. First, second, and third John. John is an, an elder at Ephesus. In all of these books, we're seeing the life of that local church play out. And then you get to Revelation chapter 2, and it's kind of the end story that we get to see, where Jesus comes and he kind of takes stock of the church. He looks at the church and he gives them a report. And in verses 2 and 3 of Revelation 2, he looks at the church in Ephesus and says, he commends them. Now, I love these things that I'm seeing. I'm seeing things like, man, you are doctrinally, you are put together. You are sound. You can smell a false teacher from a mile away. So you can rebuke false teachers. You're you're that good doctrinally. But you're also, you're patiently enduring suffering. You're not growing weary in it. You you are patiently enduring. So he commends those those great things in the church. And then in verses 4 and 5, he gives them this warning. He says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So, so the church in Ephesus, they, they suddenly, somewhere along the way, lost sight of the main thing. Somewhere along the way, there was mission drift. Somewhere, probably very subtly along the way, gospel priorities were overtaken by their little preferences. Their, their little minor agendas took the place of God's major agenda for their church. That they had this mission drift go down. And God looks at them in the midst of unrepented mission drift and he gives them this warning. If you don't turn from that and recalibrate your life as a church around what I want it to be, around my priorities, if you, if you don't turn from your minor agendas to this main agenda, if you don't do that, I, because I love you, church in Ephesus, I'm gonna actually have to work against you. And if you don't turn from these things, and recenter your, your church's life on the mission that I've given it. If you don't recalibrate around this, I'm actually going to work against you to the point where I will shut the doors of your church. And this is the sad fate of the church in Ephesus. If you go to Ephesus today, there's no church there. It was an unrepented mission drift that led to the closing of their church. And last week I said, now I want us to heed that as a warning that we are just as prone to that sort of mission drift. We are just as prone to making our little preferences 
We're putting our little preferences in the place of God's priorities for our church. We're equally prone to making minor things the, the major thing. So I, I wanted to spend last week and really this week recalibrating our church family around the thing that God has called us to. The thing that is our driver. The, the thing that we are about. And here's how we sum up kind of what we're about as a church family. We, we say it like this. Extending the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, now that isn't a statement that we have randomly created. It's one that we have humbly received from God. So regardless of what church you have ever been to, that should be pretty much at the heart of what they're trying to do. You're not going to find that statement in a single page of the Bible. But if you read from Genesis to Revelation, here's what you're going to find in the Bible. That God, for his glory and for the sake of his name, is about redeeming and rescuing a people of his own. And he does all of that through the redemptive work of Jesus, the person and work of Jesus Christ. So last week we talked about the first two parts of that statement. That we're about the glory of God. And we talked about last week that if we're ever going to get to being about the glory of God, it means that we've got to get over us. So, so we're about the glory of God. And how are we about the glory of God? We're about the glory of God by making disciples. There's a lot you could say about how a church glorifies God, but Matthew 28 gives us pretty clear directions that the primary way we can glorify God is by making disciples, seeing people meet Jesus and mature in Jesus. God is glorified by more disciples, that's people meeting Jesus, and by better disciples, that's people growing up in Jesus. This is how we glorify God as a church. So this is the what, this is what we're about Extending the glory of God by making disciples. Now this week, I want to address the how. How are we to go about making disciples? How are we attempting to actually glorify God by the making of disciples, by people meeting and maturing in Jesus? How is that to happen? And in a simple phrase, this is our answer. Through the good news of Jesus. That's how it goes down. And 1 Peter chapter 2 Verses 9 and 10, I think, give us a summation of some of this. So, so read along with me, and then we'll, uh, we'll break it down. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So when we talk about disciple making at Stonegate, we oftentimes use a stool with three legs on it. So if you want to think about the entire kind of chair or stool, it would be called the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus. This is the, the way we're trying to make disciples. But that chair has three legs. So, so leg number one is this gospel content. There is something that has to be believed and lived in. It's just gospel content. Leg two is, is this gospel-given community. That God gives us a family to live our life with to help us grow as a disciple. And then that third leg is a gospel-given mission. God not only gives us a family to live with, but a mission to live for. And those three legs make up the stool of how it is that we're growing and developing disciples here. So, and, and here's the good thing. This, this one or two verses in 1 Peter 2 give us the framework for looking at all three of those. So I, I want to work through those three legs of that stool. So, so here's the first one. When we're talking disciple making, disciple making depends on the gospel. It depends on the good news 
of all that God has done for us in the person and work of Jesus. From beginning to end, disciple making is dependent upon the good news of Jesus. I want to just say that as clear as I can one more time. From beginning to end, disciple making is dependent upon the good news of Jesus. Now, before we can talk about what the the gospel does in terms of disciple making, we've got to first clearly define what the gospel is. So the gospel is the good news that God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life in place of our imperfect life, to be slayed and slaughtered on the cross for our sin. On the cross, all of our sin got stacked onto him. His perfect record of righteousness then gets stacked onto us. Buried, buried on the third day, rose from the dead. And here's what the gospel announces in this moment. That Jesus has fought our battle, secured our victory, and through Jesus, God is in the business of setting aright all that sin has torn asunder. This is what the good news of the gospel is announcing to us. And it invites us. The, gospel, the good news of Jesus invites us to turn from our sin and to put our faith in Jesus. And in that moment of, of putting our faith in Jesus, all of these wonderful benefits flow through us. In that moment, we are justified. In that moment, we are adopted into God's family. All of these wonderful privileges and benefits then flow to all of those who have put their faith in Jesus. And this is what Peter is reminding us of in verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 9. He's reminding us of those who have put their faith in Jesus that this is, this is what the gospel now does for you. He says you're a chosen race. That, that he's announcing in the good news of Jesus that God has set his affection on you. That he has looked at you individually and said, I want them. I love them. That They are going to be mine. He, he's a, we're a chosen race, Peter says. He says that you're a royal priesthood in verse 9. A royal priesthood. A priest is a person who has access to God. Who's like got the phone and the number to call God anytime they want. They had that sort of uninhibited access. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. It is a miracle of grace that God can look at us and call us holy. It means that we have been justified. For God to to look at us and say, you're holy in my sight means that it's just as if we had never sinned. All of our wrongs are pardoned in Jesus. But even better justified is it's just as if you had always obeyed. The perfect record of Jesus. Every moment where you fell, Jesus perfectly lived in the commands of God. And when God is calling us a holy nation, he's reminding us, when I look at you, I see the perfect record of Jesus written over you. All of your sin is pardoned. You are now perfected in Jesus. You're a holy nation. And then he says, you're a people for my own possession. So in Jesus, we're not only cleansed of our sin. In Jesus, we're also claimed as sons and daughters. We're we're not just cleansed, we're claimed. God looks at us and says, you are mine. And we can now look at God and say, and you are mine. That God is saying, I'm going to be a father to you and you're going to be a son and a daughter to me. That God brings us into his family where he owns us, claims us, calls us his own. I, and part of what Peter is trying to remind us is, or of is just how much God loves us through Jesus. That he doesn't just love you, but he loves loving you. He, he loves to love you. It's not just that he tolerates you. That, that he's not only saved you, but he sings over you. 
He thinks like that about you. This is what Peter is reminding us of. The good news of all that God has done for us in the person and work of Jesus. But now let's take it a step forward now and talk about what the good news of Jesus does in terms of disciple making. See, the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the way we meet God. It is the way we're reconciled to God. So this is what 1 Peter 3.18 tells us. That, that Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. It is through the good news of Jesus that we meet God and are reconciled with God and adopted into his family. It's where all of those beautiful things happen. Now, let me just pause here for a moment and say that there are some in the room this morning that you need to experience those benefits. You need to be reconciled to God. Like right now, the, the Bible would say that you're in your sin. In other words, you're still under the wrath of God. Like, like pre us putting our faith in Jesus, we're not sons and daughters. We're enemies of God. We're traitors. We're, we're rebellious men and women who want to live our own way and in our own little plan in life. And so there needs to be a moment in every person's life. This is, this is the first part of disciple making. This is the invite of the gospel to some of us in the room this morning. The invite is to turn from your sin, trust in Jesus, and get all of these beautiful benefits. Man, let, let him call you his own. Be, become a part of this royal priesthood, this holy nation. Right now, that invitation is wide open to you. And God would say, take it this morning. Th this morning is yours. Take that. But, but here's what I want to clarify. That good news of Jesus is not just the way we meet God. It's also the way we mature. It's the way we grow as a Christian. So it's both meeting God that the gospel does, and it's us maturing that the gospel is under, sustaining, doing all of those things. So, so think about it this way. Think of who Peter is writing to. Peter is writing to a church, a group of Christians. And he's writing to them for what reason? He's, remind, he's writing them because he wants them to grow. He wants them to develop. And so why is it that Peter would write in particular, let me remind you of who you are and what you have in Jesus. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Once you were not called his people, but now you are called his people. Why would he be reminding of a, a group of Christians of that? Answer. One is because we're really prone to forget that. We are really prone to live our life without the functional awareness of who we are and what we have in Jesus. But secondly, he's writing that to a group of Christians because he's clarifying for them, this is how you grow as a Christian. I want you to grow as a Christian and I'm re reminding you of that thing that you need to grow. Namely, you need to be reminded of all that God has done for you in the person and work of Jesus. You need to be reminded of the good news of the gospel. Like the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just how you take the first step into the kingdom of God. It is how you take every step, every single step. It is the way you grow and mature. It is the way all of those things happen. Now, let me ask you the question. Do you see the good news of Jesus like that? Like that? Like for, for all of us in the room, believer and unbeliever. See, I think this exposes what I would call the gospel gap for many of us. See, for many people, when they think about what the good news of Jesus is for, they think like this. There was one moment in my past where I was saved, past tense, from the penalty of my sin. That's what I need the gospel for. And that is true, and that's a beautiful thing. It's how we're reconciled to God. But it's not just for that. And here's the gap. 
It is also a present need in your life. It is also the power of God by which he is currently saving us from the power of sin right now in our life. Present tense. It's both a past tense thing and this present tense reality that we need right now because we never leave off sinning. We never outgrow our need for the good news of Jesus. So like right now in your life, the remedy to things like insecurity, fear, worry, self-righteousness, pornography, and lust, the the remedy for things like greed and a lack of contentment, the remedy for all of those things in your life is the good news of grace. That's the remedy. Now, what Peter says a little bit indirectly in this passage, Paul says very clearly in Colossians chapter one. So I'm gonna put this up on the screen for you. And I want you to read this uh, along with me. Colossians chapter one, it says this, we always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So the the word of truth, the good news of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the context here. It's the topic for what's about to happen in verse six. This gospel, which has come to you As indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit, this gospel, and this gospel is growing as it always does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. It's growing and bearing fruit since the day you heard it and and understood it. Paul's saying here that there is a direct correlation, a direct correlation, between your grasp of the gospel and your growth in Christ. There's a direct correlation between these two things, your grasp of the gospel on one hand and your growth in Christ in the other. Or maybe we could say it this way, your growth in Christ will always mirror your grasp of the gospel. Your your growth in Jesus, your growth in maturity will always kind of be, be tied to and mirror your grasp of the good news of the gospel. This is what... What what Paul's clarifying for us in Colossians 1, that that if we want to grow and bear fruit, we've got to both hear and understand the good news of Jesus. Now that idea of understanding that Paul's getting at is not just like mentally we can agree and recite a definition. He's not saying that. He's talking about a functional understanding, a functional sort of knowing. Like it's like a knowing deep in your bones, like when life is falling apart on Monday afternoon, knowing the gospel. It's that sort of knowing. Now, this next graph, I'm going to put this picture up on the screen for you. And I think it does a good job of putting in picture form what Paul is saying and Peter, but what Paul in particular is saying in Colossians 1. So let me just work you through this really quickly here. So if you look at time, it's like the left to right movement in the graph. So as you go from left to right, that's time passing. And the point of conversion, the point of a person going from death to life, spiritually dead to spiritually alive is on that little dot. It's the moment where the lines diverge. The top line is this growing awareness of God's holiness. The bottom line is this growing awareness of your sinfulness. And conversion is the moment, the first moment when those lines diverge, when those lines part. So now think about this. When you became a Christian, you didn't have to know much to be saved. All you needed to know was the line split. God is holy. I'm sinful. I need grace really bad. 
That's what you had to know. But, but think about in that moment of conversion, how much you didn't know about that. How much you didn't know about God's holiness. How much you didn't know about how really sinful you are, right? So at the front end of becoming a Christian, we know just enough to be saved. It's like we took one step into the pool, not realizing that pool does not have a bottom to it. It is infinite in its depth. That's the good news of Jesus. So here is the, the, the Christian life. This is us growing as a Christian. As time goes on, here is what happens. We get a growing sense of things. We are growing in our awareness. This is the top line of God's holiness. It doesn't mean that God is growing in his holiness. He, he's already there. It means that we are growing in our understanding of his holiness. And, and then there's like this bottom line where we're growing in awareness of our own sinfulness, of just how deep and dark the whole of sin goes in our life. And as those two lines depart, and as those two lines grow apart, look at what happens in the middle. The size of the cross, the size of grace, the size of our understanding of God's mercy to us in the person of Jesus begins to grow and expand and loom large in our heart. Do you see that? See how that works? See, th this graph is showing us these incredibly massive gospel truths. Like number one, God is infinitely holy. Number two, we are hopelessly sinful. And in light of God being infinitely holy way up there, and in light of us being hopelessly sinful way down here, grace is massive. It is a big deal. Grace is huge in our life. The cross is massive in our life. Now, I want you to, to, to kind of connect the dots in what happens from there. So as we begin to understand how perfect God is, how hopelessly sinful we are, and how big grace is, here is what happens to every human heart in that moment. When, when a human heart gets that, when the cross begins to grow in their life, when grace begins to expand in their life, here's what happens to every human heart. It becomes alive to God. It becomes alive. Like, like the, the bigger the cross becomes, the deeper our affections for God run. The, the bigger the cross, the bigger the size of grace, the deeper our affections, the, the deeper our love of God, the deeper our, our hope in God, our trust in God. And that produces in every person's life, as our affections for God grow, as our trust in, God's, in God grows, it produces obedient lives, Christ-like lives. See, this, this is what Paul is saying here. Your grasp of the gospel, how big the good news of Jesus is to you, determines kind of your growth in Christ. Or we, we say it like this, that the larger the cross, the more Christ-like the life. The, the larger the cross, the more your affections for God begin to explode in your life and therefore producing a life that is obedient and, and following after God. And listen, this is the way Christians grow. This is it. Christians don't grow by more willpower. Christians don't grow by being guilted. That lasts all for about a week, Right? They don't grow by being kind of the fear thing. Like, that's not the way. See, all of those things leave the heart unscathed. But, but God, when he's changing a person, wants that change to go all the way down to the heart. And the only thing that can reach the heart is the grace of God. This is how Christians grow. And let me just give you two kind of street-level examples of this. Let me, let me just apply this to forgiveness. A few years back, a friend of mine who had been married for uh, quite, quite a long time, uh, he got the news that his wife was having an affair. She was committing adultery. 
And, uh, you know, in, in those sort of moments, like when a friend tells me that, I have this like deep internal struggle. Like everything in me wants to take off pastor hat in that moment and take off like even Christian hat. And it wants to put on just the friend hat. And my next thought is, where does that guy live? Let, let's go do this right now. That's my next thought. And man, it was such an interesting moment. And me just wrestling through that, he, uh, he looks at me and he says something like this. In so many words, he said, if, if God has been this kind and this forgiving and this generous to me, how, how can I not be that kind and that generous and that forgiving, not only to my wife, but to this person? How, how can I not? Now, look at what's happening in that moment. What is creating the capacity to forgive like that? See, if I would have just gotten to, you know, on the phone and said, you've got to forgive this guy. You've got to forgive your wife. You, you've got to make these things happen. If I would have yelled at him, put a little fear into him, put a little guilt over him, it would not have worked. Those things don't have the capacity to create forgiveness. The only thing that could create forgiveness in this person's heart is by having a tangible, realizing sense of how he had been forgiven in Jesus. And out of that flowed forgiveness horizontally to other people. That's the only thing that can do that. See, if forgiveness is jammed up in your life, if right now you're holding all sorts of grudges against people, the only way, the remedy to, to, you know, to solve that issue, the only remedy is for you to have a deepened sense of your own sin before God and God's great mercy before you. How, how his grace has covered you. How, how his grace has cleansed you. How his grace has claimed you, even in the midst of your sin and rebellion. That is the only thing that can unjam forgiveness. Or let me give you another one. And this may just be on the theme of like trusting God in the midst of you know, painful obedience. So this last week I was chatting with a brother that, uh, man, he's just in a rough, just a rough moment. I mean, life is really stinking hard for the guy right now. And I have all sorts of empathy for him. It is really hard. And, and the pathway for obedience in his, wife, or in, his, in his life is very painful. That what God is calling him toward is it is costly. Like I'm telling you, it's like the sort of like painful obedience that you just kind of shiver at to think about. Like God is calling him to do things that are really, 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 really hard. And so over, you know, the, the table, just trying to encourage this guy in that pathway of painful obedience. And listen, by the way, everything in him is wanting to run from that painful obedience, wanting to short circuit this thing, wanting to do everything he can to get out of that, that pathway of obedience. And so I'm just sitting across the table, you know, table as just trying to be a good brother and a good friend of this guy and just encouraging. Man, the, the path of faithfulness to God and obedience to God is always the best one. It's always the best one. Even when it's painful, it's always the best one. That is the path where God meets you with grace and he meets you with mercy. He'll refresh your soul. He'll satisfy you. Just, just go down the path of obedience. It's always the best path. And then he looked back at me just in a moment of honesty that I really appreciated and loved. And he said, how do I know God's going to meet me there? How do I know it? Okay, now let's just, let's, Let's just feel that for a second because here's the truth in this room. You may not use those sort of words as you're dealing with your own sin in your life, but you're asking and you're answering the exact same question. In the moment of do you forgive or do you not? In the moment of am I gonna look at this pornography or am I not? In the moment of am I gonna indulge the flesh right now or am I not? In the moment of am I gonna give right now or am I not going to? In all of those moments, we are making the exact same kind of assessment. 
is God really gonna meet me down that road of painful obedience? Is God really gonna meet me there? Is God really gonna, is he really gonna produce joy in the midst of, of all of this loss? Is he really gonna give me contentment in the midst of so much pain? Is God really gonna meet me there and refresh me and help me down that road? Is God really gonna do that? I mean, here's the picture I have of this guy, and I think it's where a lot of us live. We, might, we may not have these sort of pictures and words for it, but it's where we live. I, I think what obedience feels like to us many times is we're on the edge of the cliff and we know we could retreat back there. We know what's over there, but God is saying, no, I want you to jump in obedience off of the cliff. And we look over the cliff and we're thinking, we're gonna die if we do that. Are you kidding me? And he's saying, no, I want you to jump and trust that I'll catch you there, that I'll sustain you there. That, that I have good for you there. So I want you to jump. That's what obedience felt like for him. It's what it feels like for a lot of us in our life. So he looked at me and he said, how, how, how do I know that God's gonna meet me down that road of painful obedience? Now there's a lot of things we could say in response to that that are good things. But here is the best thing we could say. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now here's what, here, listen to what God's saying there. God is saying, or Paul is saying, you know, kind of as an extension of God here, put me to the test here. God is saying, why, why don't you test me? If, if I am willing to give my son on your behalf to make you a son, if I'm willing to slaughter my son so that you can be adopted into my family and be mine, if I'm willing to, to put my son on a cross to bear the weight of your sin and wrath so that you'll never have to taste it, if I'm willing to lose my son to make you a son, how much more willing would I be to meet you down this road of painful obedience? Like if I'm willing to do this massive thing, giving my son for you, how much more this relatively small thing? See how all this is connected to the good news of Jesus. If God is willing to do this for us, how much more can we trust him to meet us down this road of obedience? How much more can we trust him, even when it's painful, that he's got our good in mind? How much more can we trust him in light of knowing he's given his son for us, slaughtered, slayed on our behalf for our sin? How much more can we then trust God in the daily moments of our life that he's gonna be working for our good? Do you see how all of that is connected to the good news of Jesus? See, our growth in Christ is always a gospel issue. From beginning to end, disciple-making revolves around and lives in the good news of Jesus Christ. His life, death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. It all lives there. Disciple-making is dependent upon the gospel. Here's number two. Disciple-making depends on a gospel-given community on gospel-given community. Now look at how Peter addresses this. And this is something that would, would likely, you know, you would read over this without seeing some of the nuances that Peter is getting at here. But look at how he says this in, in verse nine. First Peter two, verse nine, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now I want you to notice in verse nine, that none of those things are singular. All of those things are plural. He doesn't say, hey, you are a, ch you know, a chosen person. It's not a chosen person, it's a chosen race. It's you all plural. You, you are a chosen race. It's not you're a royal priest, but you're a royal priesthood. You're this together. It's not just you're a holy person, 
individual. It's you're a holy nation. It's not just that you are an individual person for my own possession. It's you're a people for my possession. You see how all of those things are plural? See, the, the, in the, the good news of Jesus doesn't just save us from things. It saves us to things. The good news of Jesus doesn't just pardon and perfect us in the midst of our sin. It also places us inside of a family called the church to do life with. This is what Peter is showing us. The the, the good news of Jesus does that for us, gives us a family. And you know, this is Paul's like probably favorite metaphor for the church. In Galatians 6.12, Ephesians 2.19, 1 Timothy 3.15, all of those refer to the church as a family, as a household. People who are doing life together. Now, why would, would Peter be writing to, to this, these Christian people, reminding them of this? Go, he, he, here's the reason. He wants them to grow as disciples, to mature as disciples. And he's pointing them to one of the primary ways that God grows us, namely a church family. This is one of the primary ways he grows us. See, he's, he's trying to convince these people that going to a church on a Sunday is not, that, not biblical. Hear that. Going to a church on Sunday is not biblical. Belonging to and embedding your life into a church, that's biblical. That, that's what he's after here. He's saying, this is what you are. You're a family. This is what church is. It's not just a place you attend on Sunday. It is a group of people that you are doing life with. Now, let me just say this as clearly as I can. If you're forsaking that, if your deal is just a Sunday morning thing, not embedding your life into community and belonging to a place, you are forsaking one of God's primary means to grow you up in Jesus. So, you know, when we're kind of helping people gauge how well they are treating the church like a family, how well they're embedding their life into and belonging to a church, we oftentimes use these four questions just to kind of help gauge that. Let me just run through these really briefly for you. So just engaging, are are you living like the church is a family for you? Question number one, do you have people in your life who will speak the truth in love to you? Do you have people who will speak the truth in love? Based on Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, I think it's fair to say that if you do not have people who will speak the truth and love to you, you are not going to grow into maturity as a Christian. This is one of God's means to grow you. And here's why you need that so desperately. We all have blind spots. You have blind spots, I have blind spots. It's scary to think about, isn't it? But by definition, here's the problem with blind spots. You can't see them and I can't see them. That's the thing that's so terrifying about them. Now listen to how um, C.S. Lewis describes this. Just trying to convince us that we all have blind spots. He calls them fatal flaws. Listen to how he says it. He says, and and you see, looking back, how all the plans you have ever made always have shipwrecked on that fatal flaw. So he's talking about other people in your life, how, how it's clear to see and it's easy to see other people's blind spots, like their fatal flaws. He goes on to say, your plans have shipwrecked on X's incurable jealousy or their laziness, or their touchiness, or their muddle-headedness, or their bossiness, or their ill-temper, or their changeableness. Then he goes on to say this. This is the next great step in wisdom, to realize that you also are just that sort of person. You also have that fatal flaw, he's saying. You also have a fatal flaw in your character. 
all the hopes and plans of others have again and again shipwrecked on your character, just as your hopes and plans have shipwrecked on theirs. It's no, and listen to what he goes on to say, it's no good passing over this with some vague admission such as, of course, I know I have my faults. He's saying, no, that's not good enough. It's important to realize that there is really some fatal flaw in you, some massive blind spot, he's saying, something which gives others just that same feeling of despair which their flaws give you. And it's almost certainly something you don't know about. You seeing that? He's saying, we've all got fatal flaws and the chances are in this room, we don't know about those fatal flaws. He goes on to say this. It's like what the advertisements call halitosis. Anybody know what halitosis is? Bad breath. It's like bad breath, he's saying. Everyone else knows it, but the person who's got it. He says, you know, it's one of those things which everyone else notices except the person who has it. And then he says this, even the faults you do know, you don't know fully. Welcome to the reason we need people in our life who will speak the truth in love. We've all got bad breath and we need brothers and sisters who are willing to look at us and say, your breath is bad. That is not good. Now ask yourself, do you have those people? See, this is what a church family is meant to be for people. Now, let me get, just give two uh, kind of helpful practical tips here. Number one, you need to pursue that. If you don't pursue that, I'll guarantee you people aren't going to do it. And here's why. Because those conversations are risky. Here's what everyone is thinking before they have a hard conversation. Are we going to be friends when this is done? Are, are, are we going to be okay when this is over? It's risky for people. If you don't pursue it and make it easy for people, they're not going to do it. And here's what that would look like. That, this would work out in the context of home groups for us. You need to be in a home group and you need to look at these people and say, I invite you to point out my bad breath. When you see it, I want to know about it. So will you please do that? We're gonna be friends when it's done. Please do it. You've gotta pursue it like that. And here's the second kind of practical tip. You need to prep yourself for it. Because I don't care how godly you are, somebody telling you have bad breath hurts a little bit, right? It just hurts. It's not fun. So you need to prep yourself for it. Here's the best way I think you could prep yourself for it. When somebody looks at you and says, hey, we're about to have one of those bad breath conversations, that moment, you know, that you remind yourself of this. Here's what you need to remind yourself. Regardless of what they're about to tell me, chances are they only know the half of how bad it really is. Now think about what that does to your posture. Rather than like reflexively punching back in that moment, it allows you to sit still and to listen to people, to actually have an ear that is, is open to what they're saying, to remind yourself that they probably don't know the, the half of how bad what they're saying really is. They just see a quarter of it, a half of it. Remind yourself of that. So ask yourself, do you have people in your life who are willing to speak the truth in love? If not, you are not going to grow to maturity. We all need this in our life. Here's the second one. Are you 100% known? Are you known? So we say this all the time, that if you're 99% known and 1% unknown, it means that you're unknown. It means that you're still pretending. And welcome to like the big problem that most churches have. There's an unwritten rule in most church contexts that says this, please pretend. And what I'm trying to convince you of is, please don't pretend. Don't do it. Don't pretend. Be known. Be, be known. And man, I, 
I feel like, you know, when I think about that idea of being known and feeling exposed and putting your junk out on the table, I hate the thought of that. Every part of me recoils against that. But listen, if we want to grow up in Jesus, it's needed. We need brothers and sisters who can help us see our sin and idolatry and at the same time remind us of the faithfulness of God in the midst of that. We need that. Don't pretend. Like right now in this room, there are marriages that are just erupting. It's like a volcano, lava everywhere. Things are dying. All of that's happening. And it's as if we're trying to convince people it's not happening. Pornography ripping through our hearts. Greed. All of these sort of things. Unforgiveness. Just eating us up. And we're the people trying to convince everyone else that we've really got life together. We're wearing this costume that's saying to the world, life is okay when you know it's not. Let me just, this is the most freeing thing I think all of us can know about when it comes to community and just this idea of being known. Because of the good news of Jesus, you don't have to pretend. I mean, think about what the cross has already said about you. You are so sinful and bad that God had to send his son to die for you. Now, I don't care whatever you, you know, whatever you throw out on the table in a home group setting, it's not gonna be that bad. It's already, been, it's already been said that you're so bad that he's had to die. But listen, at the same time, the best thing's been said about you, that you're so loved and cherished by God that he was glad to send his son to die for you. See, that's, it's believing that that allows us to be known. Here's the third question quickly. Do you run when relationships get rough? Do you run when relationships get rough? You know, I, it's periodically I'll do this kind of on a Sunday morning like this. I'll have everybody take a look down the aisle around you. Just get some of those faces just kind of down the aisle and around you. Get some of those faces in your, in your kind of mental picture. Don't they look so nice, so polite? I mean, don't they look so good just sitting there? Here's what you need to know about those people that look so nice. They're the same people that are going to stab you right in the back at some point. They're the same people that are going to kick you when you're down. They're the same people who are going to sin against you and hurt you in ways that are unspeakable. Same people sitting right there beside you. And listen to me. And by the way, this is what it means to fall into Cruddy Valley, right? If we're ever going to like live as a family together, like a church family, that's got to happen. It's just part of the the process of us growing as a family together. But I, I want to just, you know, clearly articulate. You need to expect that to happen, first of all. And you need to, to... to decide now how you're going to respond in these moments. And there's really three ways people respond in the middle of being hurt by other people. Here's one way. We run to them and we make them pay. This is the aggressive types. We go Old Testament on people. It's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? This is how we operate. But then the other way to to approach conflict is the passive aggressive way. We run away from them and withdraw, but we still make them pay. When their name comes up, man, we just bash them. In our hearts, when when their name comes up in our mind, we take the club out in our heart and we just beat them to death with it. So so the passive aggressive thing is, we're just gonna subtly withdraw. We're not gonna go have the conversation. We're just gonna subtly withdraw. They should know that they've hurt us. They should be the ones coming to us. So so we're just gonna subtly withdraw and go passive aggressive on them. Now, it's really important as a church family, we all agree Way number one and way number two are not in line with the way of Jesus. They're not biblical ways, gospel ways to handle conflict. Here's the way of Jesus in handling conflict. Way number three is we run to them and we celebrate the good news of Jesus with them. We apply it to both their sin and ours. We respond in light of the good news of Jesus. This is how conflict is to be handled in a church. We don't go the passive aggressive thing and withdraw. We don't go and make them pay. We go to them 
And we have the conversation that needs to be had. That's going to them. But we also get to celebrate the good news of Jesus as we look at them and say, because of what Jesus has done for me, I get to do this for you. So I'm asking them to do that for my sin. We get to apply the gospel to the, to the wounds of our heart and their heart. So ask yourself the question, have you been running from people that have upset you? You go in Old Testament way, number one on them. You go in the passive aggressive way, or are you responding in light of the good news of Jesus? And then lastly, just real quick, number four, do you prioritize community in your decision-making? Is it prioritized? Like think about the big decisions do you make? Do you involve other people in on that? Uh, you know, one of the signs of growing in maturity is that you trust yourself less and you trust other people to speak into your life more, that you're open to that. That's a sign of maturity in your life, that you have a healthy suspicion of your own heart and motives and that you're asking for good input into others or from others. Okay, and lastly, and we'll land the plane here. Disciple making de uh, depends on gospel given mission. It depends on gospel given mission. Look one more time at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. And look at how verse 9 ends. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. For what? So like, why has God done all that? What, what is God up to in all that? For, for what? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. See, Peter is writing to these people because he wants them to grow. He wants them to mature. He wants them to develop. And he's looking at them and saying, to develop, you need to be on mission like this. You need to be a people who are proclaiming God's excellencies. In a very real way, our maturity in Christ is helped by and nurtured by us living on mission. Our maturity is helped by, nurtured by us getting on mission with God. This is part of how God grows us up. It's for us to get in the in the you know, in the fray and in the, the shrapnel of God's mission and his kingdom expanding, for us to be in on that and moving in that and, and right in the center of that. And let me just give you two helpful things that I think this passage shows us here. Number one, look at the idea of excellencies. L look at what he, what he says and how he kind of pictures evangelism. He pictures evangelism like this. Here's what you get to do. You get to go tell people about how great God is. That's what you get to do. You get to proclaim his excellencies. Now, let's, let's contrast that with how many people think about evangelism. See, many people think about evangelism as like, this is debate class in a glorified version. But listen to me here. People are not going to enter the kingdom of God based on how well you can defend Jesus. They're gonna enter the kingdom of God based on how well you delight in Jesus. See, this is what he's showing us. You get to proclaim what God is doing in you, how God's changing you, how grace has met you, how the mercy of God has overwhelmed you. You get to tell people about the difference God is making. That's what evangelism looks like. Letting people see all that God is up to in you. Letting people see just how big and beautiful God is. It's proclaiming his excellencies. It's you delighting in God and letting other people see that delight. I love how um, one guy commenting on Blaise Pascal, an old French philosopher, said it. He said it this way. If you don't make people want to believe the gospel is true, it doesn't matter what sort of argument you lay before them. For Pascal, presenting someone with a list of proofs for Christianity or evidence for faith is probably a waste of time. If someone doesn't want to believe, no amount of proof or proof text can ever convince them. 
The crucial factor in persuading someone to believe then is not to present evidence, but first to awaken a desire for God in them. In other words, when commending Christianity to people, make it attractive. Make good men wish it were true and then show them that it is. Such arguments as there are for Christianity can convince those who hope it is true, but will never convince those who don't. Here's what he's saying. Delighting in Jesus is how you awaken a desire for Jesus in other people. It's by showing them how good he is through your own life and heart, what he's doing in you, that awakens in people around you this idea. That would be awesome if that were going on in me. I could do some of that in me. I need some of that. This is what awakens them to that by proclaiming his excellencies. And then lastly, I just want to point out that Paul or Peter is looking at us and saying here, you need to be about doing this. Like this is, this is what you need to be about doing. Like there's got to be an intentionality about it. You don't just stumble into living on the mission of God. That's not how it works. That we have to be very intentional in talking to God on behalf of people, praying for them. This is why we encourage everyone in our church family to have a top five list. People that you're praying for God to rescue and redeem. But we have to be equally intentional in talking to people on behalf of God. It's a both end. We've got to be people who are talking to God for the sake of people and talking to people on behalf of God. Like we're actually engaging in conversations about the good news of Jesus, about things, of, of spiritual things, about faith in Jesus, about these sort of things. And, and let me just end with, with one story on this. Um, you know, when it comes to, to broaching spiritual conversations with people, with neighbors, coworkers, can we all just admit we are all scaredy cats when it comes to this? I am. There's things about me that I just, gosh, it's so scary sometimes, you know? And uh, I'm just praying that God would give us a, a renewed boldness to engage in these sort of ways. Um, I talking to one of my buddies this week. He's in my home group, and he manages kind of a, a, a company sort of a thing. And he had a client come in, and the client was complaining. And somewhere in the middle of complaining, the client pulled out his wallet, showed a picture of his family, and just spoke really harshly about each of his kids. And uh, my my buddy looked at him and said, man, you just like spoke really harshly about, you know, your your kids. And he goes on to, to basically say, yeah, it's because they're idiots. It's because they are just absolute, like they deserve it. And my friend looked at him and said, uh, man, can, can I pray for you? Now, that's a scary moment, isn't it? That's like you're on the high dive and you just jumped and you're like hoping that there's water in the pool. And so, so the guy looks back and says, are you serious? And then he says, yes, you can. And so my buddy starts praying for him and this dude instantly just breaks out weeping. Just I mean, just can't control himself in his office. They finish praying. The guy gets his phone, calls his wife, gets her on the phone and says, you need to talk to this guy and hands the phone to my friend. (laughs) Could we not use about 3 billion more of those stories around here? Let's pray together. I want to give you just a second to allow the Spirit of God to press into you the things that would be most helpful this morning and to wipe away the things that aren't helpful. And You know, if you're in here this morning and you're investigating Jesus, there's never been a moment where you have turned from your sin. It's called repentance. Turn from your sin and in faith, turn toward Jesus 
and believed in him, given your life to him, trusted that, trusting that God will, will pardon you because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and perfect you, that Jesus gets all of your sin, you get his perfect record of righteousness, now you're in the family of God. If there's ever been a moment where you have put your faith in Jesus, man, this is your moment. This morning, you need to do that. You need to turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus. And if that's you, I just want to invite you right now. You can pray to God in your own words. Tell God that. You want to do that this morning. And if that's you, I want to make sure you grab one of those um, black guest cards under your seat. Fill that out and check that box on, on establishing a relationship with God. We'd love to follow up with you this week and begin the process and journey of walking beside you in that. And for the rest of us, I just want to invite you to do some business with God this morning. And I'm praying that God would give each of us just a renewed sense of, man, I want to grow as a disciple. I want to mature as a disciple. And God God would help us see and clarify for us this morning that that means we need to be rehearsing the gospel. We need to be living in the gospel. We need to be reminding ourselves of all that we have and all that we are in Jesus. There's nothing more important for any Christian to do daily in their life than rehearse the good news of Jesus. We're that prone to forget it. And that we would be a people living in community, not just going to church on a Sunday, but our lives embedded into and belonging to a group of people who who we're known to. They're speaking the truth in love. They're invited into our life. And that this year, as we step into mission, as we step into what God's doing in the world and playing our little part in it, that God would mature and grow us. So Father, by, by your grace right now, will you lead us to repentance? God, will you poke in those areas of our heart where we need it poked and where we need conviction this morning? And God, will you humble us? God, in your kindness, would you lead us to repentance? God, help us be a people this morning who will turn from every known sin in our life and in faith turn to you believing that you will meet us down that painful road of obedience. God, convince us of that this morning. It's in your good name we ask it. Amen. Won't you stand with us as we sing? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.